What's up, everybody? We're back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And very special guest joining us on the factory floor today. Uh, culture writer Bailey Herday is here. Bailey, thanks so much for joining us and for, uh, for hanging out today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're very, very excited to get you on the show. Uh, we've been talking about it for a little while, and it's finally come to fruition. And I'm excited to talk about the movie uh, that you brought with you today, maybe one that we co-conspired to, to bring to our listeners. <laughs> uh, today, we're talking about Jane Campion's 1993 film, The Piano, um, a celebrated work of female cinema, did some, some damage at the Oscars that year as well. Up against a lot of formidable opponents, though, uh, came out the same year as Spielberg Schindler's List, um, a film that just by virtue of its uh, subject matter, you have to take very seriously. And the Academy did and awarded it its its highest award, the best picture that year. But I, I have to imagine that this film in any other year, maybe like 92 or 93, we might be taught or 92 or 94, rather, we might be talking about it as a best picture winner. Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, just considering, I don't know, just the strength of everyone's performance and the accolades that it did get uh, that year, I think, like you said, it was just up against some some heavy hitters. So, And of course, you know, the, the actors were celebrated um, along with a uh, an original screenplay Oscar for, for Jane Campion that year. Holly Hunter uh, and her co-star Anna Paquin both won. Uh, actress and supporting actress categories, um, both rightfully deserved, and lots of like little you know trivia about this movie. Uh, one being that Anna Paquin is the second youngest person to ever win an Oscar, eclipsed only by Tatum O'Neill. Yeah, I knew it was going to be Tatum <laughs> in Paper Moon <laughs> in '73. Yeah, and and it was only by yeah, was, I think she was like ten and a half. Paquin was like eleven when she won here she's doing great work i'm not like a huge fan of anna paquin i don't know how you feel about her bailey but like as an adult i've never been like oh you're my favorite mm -hmm. but she's incredible in this movie like accent and all she is doing a ton of work no totally i i'm the same way where you know i've i've definitely seen anna paquin in, in a lot of things at this point i, I had a true blood phase but um <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I was, was I was just astounded, honestly. And like, I think too, it's really impressive just because like, she probably has the most lines out of anyone in the movie. Yeah. And she is like, she's just like, so precocious. It's hard to imagine like, how she was able to do that. And she's also the one I think who has, um, has the most kind of like, emotional range, like she gets all these different beats where she's She's happy, she's angry, she's sad, she's playful, she's judgmental. And, you know, a lot of the other characters are a little bit more muted and kind of have moments of explosive emotion. But she's kind of playing in all of those territories for the entire film. Absolutely. She's like, you know, besides being her her mother's translator, I feel like she's kind of like the translator of like the emotional arcs uh, throughout the film, too. Beyond just the performances, though, Bailey, I wonder what you feel about the film proper, uh, just in, in general. Um, I know before we got on mic, you said that it, this was a recent watch for you. And admittedly, this is the first time I've ever seen it as well. I'm mm -hmm. curious what your takeaways were from your first watch and, and if you rewatched it the second time, um, how you feel about the film overall? 
Um, I really loved it. I I definitely I tend to you know veer more towards period pieces, so that already was like okay, I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know it's like there's you know obviously there's the the eroticism and you know the romance of it and the kind of internal musings of a woman, but like I think just um, in terms of like its atmosphere and you know, kind of like the smaller moments in the movie, like it all really comes together. Um, and I had seen like a couple, uh, like the big Jane Campion thing that I'd seen before I watched the piano besides the power of the dog um, was uh, top of the lake. Mm. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah. And that is, it's kind of the same thing where, you know, it's this kind of long project on, you know, womanhood and kind of the relationships to men and, uh, power and all that type of stuff so I really loved it overall and I think it, it really fits I mean uh, it really meshes well with kind of her her style and her preferred subject matter I would agree with that first time I watched this movie I think I was like I don't know how old I was it was out on VHS um, and I'm old enough to have been like probably eight or so when I watched it um, and I remember just like really not enjoying it despite the fact that like I've always been like drawn to period pieces and I loved the English patient as a child because you know whatever I was a weird kid um and and so when we came back to it I was like man like I'm sure I didn't get this movie or like appreciate it at that age because how could you Mm -hmm. and I really didn't and I think like even even coming back to it now like it's one of those films that after I finished it, I was still thinking about it and still sort of like uncovering ideas and feelings that I had about it. Um, and that's, I spend a lot of time as, as we all do on this, on this chat, thinking about movies and talking Mm -hmm. about movies, but it's rare that there's one that sort of sticks with you where like the next day you find yourself thinking about it um, or, you know, pondering, aspects or elements of the characters and I certainly was with this film particularly um its formal qualities I mean it's just beautiful really really lovely she's doing a ton of work there that I think is hard to shake yourself from you can tell that she's very like preoccupied with with landscapes um she's always you know giving you like you said those those like beautiful vistas and I think um in the power of the dog, even though it's set in uh, Montana, I think they did uh, film a lot of it in New Zealand. So it's the mm-hmm. same thing where, you know, you can tell that she really loves the place that she's from, you know? Yeah. I had a similar experience. I think as you Carly, you know, mostly because we were conversation partners, you know, the day after we watched this where uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very small kind of movie, but those interiorities uh, play out in these like grand sweeping vistas and in and, and these, you know, very exotic kind of rich places. It, it plays out a lot like kind of like literature in that it's, it's really fun to talk about and interrogate and investigate after the fact, um, even while it can feel maybe a little bit, a little taxing, a little challenging, even while you're watching it, you know, it, it certainly has a very deliberate pacing to it. Um, but it's it's so rich. It's so full of details. Um, but one of the things I think that surprised me about it is that, you know, I, I knew of this film's legacy. I have often heard of its romance, of its eroticism. 
Um, and maybe it's, you know, that we're watching it almost 30 years removed from when it was, it was very popular. And, uh, that coupled with the fact that we just did showgirls on, on the, the pod, but I found the eroticism much more understated than the film's legacy would have led me to believe. Than the Twitter conversations from ladies would have you believe, you mean? <laughs> yeah, maybe, but I also like, I, yeah, I'm also old enough to remember people talking about this movie and have heard about it in film circles and people appreciating, you know, Jane Campion. Um, it just, it just feels much more understated than I thought it was going to be. I, I thought that it was going to be a much more kind of like carnal and like, I don't want to say sexy, but I just more like kind of provocative movie. Mm. And it certainly has elements of it. You know, there's a lot of kind of texture and, and uh, complications to the central romance that we can get into a little bit later. But uh, yeah, I just, I, I found it kind of muted like the rest of the film. Um, it's, it's a, it's a patient movie. It doesn't try to bludgeon you with anything it's doing. How did you feel Bailey about this sort of inception of Harvey Keitel's character, his romance or his, his infatuation with Holly Hunter's character? And I ask only because I remember like, you know, that there was a central romance in this film and and that it was sort of very literary and kind of epic and and uh, sweeping. But upon this watch, I think I was kind of um, surprised at how I don't want to say uncomfortable I was in the beginning, but just I was like, this doesn't feel like earned, you know, like there's a, a lot of intent and and aggression uh, or at least forwardness on Harvey Keitel's character's part. And I, I, I wasn't like bothered by it. I was just more surprised at the tone. I think um, definitely on my first watch, I, I was the same way where it was like, you know, he, he sees her and he hears her playing the piano. And then after that, it's kind of like, you know, he clearly has a goal. Um, and, you know, and I think at first glance, it definitely seems one-sided because he's going so aggressively, you know, like, and he has, they're literally like bargaining for sexual favors, basically like one, one key, if you take your, your jacket off five keys, if you (laughs) lift your skirt, you know? Um, but I think like watching it again, you kind of see that Ada, Holly Hunter's character, really has like an intentionality. Like she, in the beginning, um, when she has her her um, voiceover, she says how her father says that her will is very strong and how, mm. you know, she, um, if she decided to stop breathing, that would be her last day on earth. Uh, so you get the sense of like, you know, there's nothing that she does that she doesn't want to do. You you definitely do get a sense of like discomfort, but I think that she knows what she's what she's doing. She's like she's curious about it and that's why she lets it happen. It's not that it's happening to her, you know? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. She and you know, as you say, I never felt like she was an agent at any point. Mm -hmm. Like I never felt like she wasn't in control in some capacity. And I think there is also something interesting to explore between the aggression and infatuation of Harvey Keitel's character and the same feelings manifested very differently from Sam Neill's character Um, that, 
you know, despite the fact that they are both men who are approaching her with a sense of like ownership, I would say, um, it, I think Campion as a female director does a really good job of showing us the ways in which those, those two men can be very different, even in sort of similar intents. Um, and, and we're, you know, we see that play out in how Ada receives it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Bailey, would you mind taking a crack at briefly synopsizing this film and telling us what the piano is about? Yes. Um, so um, the piano is about Holly Hunter's character, Ada. Uh, she is mute. Uh, some some things describe her as selectively mute. Um, she says in the beginning that she doesn't know why she doesn't speak. Uh, it's a mystery to her and everyone around her, but it's just a reality of her life. Um, she has a, a young daughter, Flora. She and Flora, or her father marries her off to Sam Neill, who lives in some remote part of New Zealand, and she and Flora go there. Um, and they bring a bunch of stuff with them, but the big thing that they bring with them is this piano, this beautiful, <laughs> presumably custom-made piano uh, that she adores and they get there it's this you know terrible horrible kind of hostile looking beach um you know they they bring her there sam neil meets them and they're like okay let's go and she wants to bring the piano but they don't want to bring it because it's so big and heavy and they have to go so far and you can tell that like immediately like that's that's no good for for ada um she does all this negotiating through her daughter they uh, decide to leave the piano on the beach, which, you know, no good for Ada. And then they go back and she's not happy. She's not really making any effort in her, her new marriage to Sam Neill. You know, everyone's kind of making comments about it, how she's cold and strange and weird and deaf and dumb and all this stuff. Um, and then Harvey Keitel's character, Bane, I think they say he's like a former whale hunter. Um, he lives there. He has kind of assimilated with the local Maori culture. He has the the tattoos um, and he's there and he sees Ada and he becomes kind of fascinated with her and he agrees to, um, or no, he makes a deal with Sam Neill to take the piano um, in exchange for some land if Ada will give him lessons. And that's kind of the beginning of their, you know, little relationship. And it's very clear early on that, like, he actually is not interested in learning how to play the piano. He just wants to sit <laughs> and listen to her and watch her. They they make that deal. And then he makes a deal with um, Ada uh, in exchange for him, her allowing him to talk to her, watch her, touch her. Uh, you know, watch her undress, all that stuff, he will give her the piano back key by key until, you know, some, I don't really know how he envisions the end of that, <laughs> that deal. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, so then, you know, they, the movie is their, um, their meetings where she plays whatever she wants and he just kind of watches her and is fascinated by her and the, uh, the relationship kind of ramps up eventually. 
much to Sam Neill's dissatisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is indeed very dissatisfied by the end of this movie. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> well, bravo. Thank you for, for uh, summarizing that for us. Of course. Again, with you know the little trivia tidbits about this film and its sort of importance, TM, uh, Jane Campion becomes the very first female director ever to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes for this film in 1993, um, which certainly kind of sets sets it apart and on the world stage as a, a film and a director to watch. Um, and again, I think rightly deserved. You know, there's uh, there's a lot of just expert filmmaking going on here. Um, it feels very realized for something uh, in in a filmmaker's oeuvre that's that's so early on, you know, that she's still making films now 30 years later. Um, but this one came out so so final and so kind of this triumphant statement is is certainly uh, worth heralding. In fact, in in 2019, the BBC got together something like 80 maybe more than that, something like 400, I think, film experts from 83 countries uh, and asked them to compile a list of the 100 best films directed by women. And this one was uh, no contest number one hmm. on on those ballots um, ahead of things like Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust, um, Claire Denis' Beau Travail, other like great works of, of, you know, sort of feminist or, you know, female directed cinema. Um, this one still stands as sort of like the one to beat as like the, the queen regent, I guess we can call it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and there's a lot of complexity in it, you know, even beyond the, the beautiful cinematography and the lushness of its setting. Um, we are given Ada McGrath, Holly Hunter, uh, who's a fascinating character. I think in a lot of ways, she is very much a sort of archetypal female character from this period, from the 19th century. But I think it's the film's perspective and specifically the way it centers and foregrounds her emotions, um, despite her silence, despite a lot of her exploitation, um, that really makes the difference. First, I, I want to say that I think it's very cool to have Holly Hunter, who has such a distinct voice, such a yes. distinct sound, be totally silent for yeah. a movie. Um. I just think that's like a cool subversion of kind of, you know, what people expect from Holly Hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, for Ada, for the character, I think, I mean, it's very clear that she has like, uh, you know, a very strong internal dialogue. And in fact, like, that's what you, that's your introduction to her is her internal dialogue. Um, you know, so there's no mistake that there's a lot going on in this woman's mind. Um, and I think it's interesting that you know, she does have all that going on. She does have a very strong will. She's very opinionated. She has a very specific vision for what makes her happy um, and how to express that. And I think it's also interesting that she has these moments of like childishness throughout the movie that I find like, you know, very, very compelling, like, especially when Sam Neill's character finds out that she and Baines have slept together and he locks her in their house. And she's, she's basically like throwing a tantrum and her, you know, small daughter is trying to deal with her. It's it's very, it's very strange, a strange role reversal in uh, a relationship that's already kind of, you know, reversed. 
there's just so many so many interesting layers to her she has you know she will she has a strange relationship with people you know that she encounters just because of her muteness Mm -hmm. um and she has this kind of like strange perspective like there's one part where um flora tells some of the the women in the town or village that her mother says and what most people say isn't worth listening to (laughs) to begin with Mm -hmm. um but that's like ostensibly like the only thing that she can do is listen because nobody really listens to her um yeah I just she's so so fascinating and I think like I was saying earlier you know she's clearly a person who doesn't do anything that she doesn't want to do despite Mm -hmm. being in this position of um of less power especially because she can't express herself as other people do um and I think that part of the pull towards Baines is that he he's the one person who like does actually listen to her despite you know the fact he he's the person who you know he sees through uh the fact that she can't talk and it's not important to him like he he's he notices things he notices that she loves his piano he knows that that's the way to get to her um and you know, it's, it's really powerful. It's powerful to feel seen by a person. And I think that's why she, she lets the relationship go on as it does. Yes. It's easy for her, I think, to get lost in, in all of that and for people to speak for her or not think of her at all. And the attention that Bane's Harvey Keitel's character gives her is not pandering it's genuine and it's earnest um and i think for any woman like that is a a a treasure and something that feels really good but i think especially for ada um because no one listens to her right uh because they can't and won't um it's even more special and so i find i find ada interesting in that she kind of you know sits in this space of leading women uh who who are um the romantic object of uh an older man who who's infatuated but she also inverts a lot of the tropes that come with that character typically and it makes her um and the story more interesting and if we take her literally at her word you know uh to to go back to this idea that Kaitel is the only person who listens to her. She literally tells us at the very beginning of this with her mind's voice that the piano is her voice. Thus, you know, Sam Neill deliberately withholds her ability to even speak, whereas Kaitel is the person who permits it. He right. listens. He listens to her voice. He allows her to express. He makes an active uh, gesture to create a space in which she can speak. One of the moments that I, I thought about a lot is like when he he hears her playing the piano on the beach and decides to to take it back for her. Um, after he brings it back to his house, he has it tuned. Uh, and when she when she gets there, she expects it to be you know in rough shape, all out of tune, and she doesn't want to play it if it's not uh, in tune. But it's perfect, and I think that's just like I again that's like you know, you can tell that even though he goes about it in kind of this like strange and aggressive way, like he really does 
care about what she cares about. And is attentive to the details of her life and the things that matter to her, which like, who doesn't want that, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Talking more about her relationship to Flora, to Anna Paquin's character, I found a lot of of stuff to mine there too, in terms of uh, analyzing that relationship. And I, I think Carly, you're right. You know, there's a lot about this relationship that feels uh, more like two peers, or or sometimes even uh, with Flora being kind of the adult in the room. Uh, Ada is very childish often. She's not very in charge of her emotions. She acts out in in very physical ways, um, given that she can't do so verbally. And Flora winds up being the person who has to sort of mitigate. We see this from the very beginning uh, where she sort of unreservedly says some very mean things to a ship captain when they drop them off on the beach. Uh, And then Ada has to stand between Flora and the captain because he gets aggressive and angry about the things that she didn't even say, simply the things that she was translating on behalf of her mother. Um, And we see this kind of dynamic play out a lot that she winds up having to be sort of the messenger that's always kind of like, uh, you know, cast uh, or, or, you know, put up on the stake because of things that she's simply uh, reiterating or simply restating as translation from from Ada herself. I think it's interesting that Flora has several moments where it seems like she's acting directly um, out of spite for her mother. And it had me thinking like, what is she resentful of? Is she resentful of the fact that she does have to often play the part of an adult at a young age and that that sort of hampers her, her childhood in a certain way. Um, And then I was thinking like, is she, is she resentful of the fact that, you know, in, in often being the mouthpiece for her mother, she still is not necessarily given access to certain parts of her mother's life. Like there are all these different, um, these different possibilities, but I do think it's clear that there is a sense of resentment on Flora's part um, toward her mother for whatever reason. And it's the thing that catapults us into the climax of the film when uh, Sam Neill's character. What is his name, by the way? Alice Stewart. Alice Stewart. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> totally forgotten it. Um, Stewart, you know, finds out about the affair. He sort of, kind of, fecklessly forgives her, and um, and they make uh, tenuous amends. And he leaves to go on a trip and says, you know, I'm trusting you. Like, don't see Baines. Don't go to this dude. And she's like, sure, sure, whatever. And so she sends Baines this piano key, um, basically telling him you have my heart. And she gives it to Flora to give to Baines. And instead of going to Baines, Flora goes and takes it to Sam Neill's character. And this sets him off into this sort of tempestuous rage, um, wherein he ends up chopping off one of her fingers. And it's horrifying and it's it's really effective and arresting, I think, because so much of the rest of the film is um, sort of small and uh, and played in these really like intimate emotional corners um, between these three or four people. And then this kind of explosion of violence and uh, and action happens. And the thing that 
I paid the most attention to in this sequence was one, Ada's response, which is she just kind of goes white, right? And and is stunned. But also Flora, who is like awash with, you know, fear and all of these emotions. And I just felt so clearly how like confused she was and also like how tormented by guilt because I think on some level her character does know that it is her fault. Um, and it's just a very, it's a very heartbreaking and really emotionally intense sequence. And um, I think it's beautifully done by everyone, um, but particularly by Anna Paquin. Yeah, absolutely. I think going back to like what her, her motivation is for, for that moment, I think, what I was reading it as was more um, jealousy on her mm. end because, you know, up to this point, her and her mother by necessity. And I think just because, you know, she is one of the only pers- people who, who understands her mother and, you know, kind of acting as that midpoint for her relationship um, or Ada's relationship to the rest of the world, you know, like they are kind of um, very closely intertwined regardless of whether or not the the relationship is, is maternal, um, they're always together and yeah. she is very involved in what her mother does. And then, you know, this thing with Bane starts happening and all of a sudden she's kind of being boxed out. You know, there's like the mm-hmm. one scene shortly after they make the deal, Ada has clearly decided like, okay, like Flora can come when I go to do, do these lessons, but she can't be in the house as it happens because, you know, not very kid-friendly things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's, you know, kind of slowly being pushed out of the more intimate details of her mother's life. And she she doesn't like that, you know? Like, there's points where it seems like she's okay. She's playing by herself. You know, she clearly has a very active imagination. Um, and she is, like, mature for her age. So you think, like, mm-hmm. you know, she's she seems to be dealing with this um, pretty well. But then, you know, you kind of see her reaching a point of, you know, she she doesn't want to be excluded anymore. She goes mm-hmm. to the house while her mother and Baines are there and she sees them, you know, starting to have sex. And then, you know, she's curious. She wants to be involved. And there's that scene where she and some of the Maori children are like, you know, pretending to kiss uh, tree trunks and, and all that stuff. And Sam Neill is like, you know, we don't do that. Like, that's not that's not what little girls do, what we do. And she, she clearly like misses her mother and is trying to connect with her somehow. And I think that Mm. that's um, what drives her to take the piano key to um, Stuart rather than taking it to Bane. She thinks that, you know, he'll get mad again. He'll shut us up in the house and then I'll be with Mm. her again. You know, she obviously has no idea that he's going to, you know, explode because, she, you know, she's still a, a child. She doesn't really realize kind of the, the bigger implications of what she's telling him. It kind of, when I was rewatching it, I was thinking um, it reminds me of uh, another young uh, Oscar uh, nominee um, atonement in uh, with uh, Saoirse Ronan where, you know, she yeah. does the same thing where she, yeah. she tells on someone that she's seen a, a sexual situation, not realizing the implications of, of what she's done. And obviously in that movie, you know, it doesn't 
really work out for anyone, but no, yeah, <laughs> that's a great but, parallel. That is. Yeah. But it's the same thing, you know, where it's like you, you're used to having this level of attention or, um, this level of care and you're not getting it anymore and you're a child and you know, the way that you act out as you go to some, some person of authority and you tell them like, Hey, this is what's going on. Not yes. realizing that, you know, you're ruining several lives in the process. <laughs> going back to Holly Hunter really quickly. There's a lot of incredible work happening off camera in preparation for this role as well, along with learning to play the piano. Uh, oh, I thought she just had no, I mean, she seems very adept. Well, this is, this is, uh, this is where all of this comes in, all the all the magnificent work that's happening here. So she learned to play this piano and, and uh, you know, in interviews talks about coming up with things about her character that feel as if they're they're very lived in. So she did have to become incredibly proficient at, at the piano itself and the technicality of it, uh, but also just these songs and, and know them front, back, left and right. Likewise, she also worked with a uh, person who, who taught her sign language. I don't, I don't know what they call those besides sign language experts, um, but they actually developed something like a, a sort of homegrown version of sign language based on the Scottish alphabet and then also uh, personal unique uh, signs and figures that she and Anna Paquin would learn to make together that felt like they were developed in the home. And then sort of learned uh, these sort of like colloquial mannerisms and, and gestures along with an actual Scottish alphabet. So there's there's a lot of incredible work happening here. I'm glad you brought that up because it's clear for anyone who is even remotely familiar with ASL that it is not ASL. It is like something different. And there's like a um, there's a kind of like balletic quality to the way that. Ada moves when she's speaking with her hands um, and it made the kind of like homegrownness that you're talking about more apparent. It feels very expressive and kind of organic and less sort of like her drawing from, you know, a lexicon of motions with her hands that she knows. And it's it feels more like storytelling every time she speaks with her hands. The way that she does it does feel like very like individual, like, you know, she became mute and then to cope with it, you know, kind of independently created this language, the sign language that's not necessarily coming from up on high. There's no like you right. know, lessons involved. It seems like, you know, she kind of made it up and then was able to communicate her meaning, you know, just through repetition or something like that. Um, I think the one part that's like really um that really demonstrates that is when she there's a part where she and flora are um in bed and flora asks her to tell a story uh about her father and um you know she says how they 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 loved each other and he was the only one who who could listen to her and it's just like the way that holly hunter like moves her hands and her head too yes. especially it's just like so mesmerizing completely um, yeah it's, it's so great to watch that scene is gorgeous I'm so glad you mentioned it because it's one of my favorites and they're kind of like a wash in this like amber light and they're in these you know white dressing gowns and it feels like a fairy tale it's a beautiful scene yeah absolutely I really appreciate the sort of off-screen pre-diegetic romance that they continue to refer back to that uh 
is how flora came into being and into the world you know they they obfuscate a lot of the details of it and ada tells a few stories you know like this one to to flora about about her father uh, but Flora also tells many different versions of this story to other people who will listen. And at the beginning of the film is telling these uh, sort of housekeepers or the other women, you know, living in this in this homestead along with Sam Neill, that uh, he was struck by lightning that rendered Ada mute and that uh, there were something like, you know, fairies and wizards and things like that at the wedding ceremony. Um, so you can tell she she's imbued it with all of this sort of childlike fantasy to to help her fill in the gaps of what must be a lot of open endedness and a lot of unanswered questions she has about her own origins. The only other moment that they ever allude to it is incredibly subtle and I, I think really lovely. And it's a moment when Ada is playing the piano at Baines's house. And briefly, we see her press down a key, and in close-up, the adjacent key on the in- interior of it, we see the initials A and D. And we're never given the father's name. We don't know anything about him beyond what's told. Um, but there is this this presence sort of looming over the film of, of this previous love of this other person that was once in her life that loved her enough and, and listened to her and heard her the right ways to to conceive of a child and to have something like a life together for a little bit. I, th- I think it's really well done. I think so too. I also kind of love the idea that Ada like kind of has an MO maybe with uh, engraving uh, <laughs> yeah. names on keys, yes. you know? <laughs> um, it's her calling again, card. Like, yeah, exactly. But I think it's great because it does kind of, it tells you like this is this woman like has had a whole life before this happened, you know, like she's, Mm. like you said, like she isn't some, you know, nubile young bride who has no idea what's going on, anything like that. Like she has a life. She had a a whole romance before this and however it ended, you know, like she, she has experience. She's not going into this totally uh, starry eyed or anything like that, which I think is really great. It also is making me realize too, that the, the key, that she gives um Baines then sort of like is is our signal that this is true love right mm-hmm. because we know that that's uh, a marker of her previous relationship which we can imagine was um probably filled with love given that she had Flora and uh and she seems to not be like you know ready to accept this new marriage um I like that that sort of tells us that aligns us with, you know, the trueness of her heart and her feelings. You also have me on this now thinking of it as her MO and realizing that uh, she writes the message on the inside of this this piano key for George. Uh, and he's already told us in the film that he's illiterate, so can't read it. Right. <laughs> so yeah. You, you kind of conceive that it's it's an expression of her love that maybe feels familiar to her that she's done in the past. Um, and, and isn't necessarily considering it in, in the specific context of the love she's feeling for George mm-hmm. and what he's able or, or unable to do. I also think the on the subject of his illiteracy, I think that's really interesting, too, because, uh, you know, that's one of the ways that Ada communicates is that she writes. Um, and that's probably one of the main ways that she does when Flora's not around. Um, and, you know, he can't understand her that way. Um, but he does understand her like through the piano, through her gestures, 
even though he doesn't have any idea um, about her sign language or anything like that. I think that's just like mm. another cool little layer to kind of his um, intuitiveness when it comes to to Ada and and also just the care that he takes to to pay attention to her. Aaron had brought up the point when we were talking about this movie that it would have been kind of easy for another storyteller who maybe isn't Campion to give us internal narration um, from Ada throughout the movie. And he, Aaron had said that he really liked that that wasn't the case. And, and it had me thinking about, you know, you know, this point that you both have brought up that the piano is how she speaks and that it's how Harvey Keitel's character listens to her. Um, it's also the thing, you know, sort of non-diegetically that, uh, that acts as her voice throughout the film, right? When she's playing it, yes, but also the, the score of the movie, the, the very famous, um, theme song of the film comes up and also versions of it and kind of mirrors her emotional, um, in, in any given moment in the story. And I like that that serves as narration, um, that serves as her voice, not just in the story, but also for us um, as an audience. Yeah, I think, you know, in any movie, the score obviously kind of gives you cues to emotion and all that stuff. But I think this one, it, it is really powerful, um, both within the narrative and without. Um, I think that there is like one part where she's with Baines and you know, when she's with him, she plays this beautiful, like very deep emotional music. Um, but then this particular day, she's playing that. And then, you know, he's, he's touching her and he's feeling her. And then she starts playing some like upbeat jig and he steps away like, you know, what's wrong? Right. <laughs> like, you know, she killed the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> she totally did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think that's great because, you know, like she, she does have a way because it's very obviously it would be very easy for him to take advantage of her uh, in this dynamic because, you know, there's no way for her to like say the word no. Um, mm. There's, she can push back whatever, but like, you know, obviously this is a time when that may not have been very relevant to most people. Um, but, you know, she has this, this piano and, and that's how she communicates her discomfort. And he, again, mm. he listens. Yeah. Um and that's the other thing too that I I like about um, this movie and Jane Campion movies uh, in general is that I think she you know she has these great complicated female characters, but I think she also has these great complicated male characters as well, um, yeah. where you know they do have that kind of classic masculinity or those kind of like toxic tendencies at times where you know. Like Baines, you know, he's kind of forceful. He's very um, aggressive. Um, but, you know, in the end, like, he, they, he's not enacting it in any, you know, truly harmful way. It's just like, you know, his instinct is to to go about this um, aggressively. But then as time goes on, he thinks about it and he's like, well, I don't want to do this if you're if you don't feel the same way. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on with both Keitel and Sam Neill, you know, up until he acts out in this moment of really brutal violence, you you tend to 
sympathize with him ever so much. Like you don't see him as an outright, just like evil or, or terrible person. He's just ignorant. You know, he's just a man who's very sort of caught up in the sort of like milieu of like colonial uh, European things. I, I don't even know what to call it, you know, but, but he's, he's sort of caught up in, in that kind of colonial attitude and, and, you know, sees, the land and the people as something exploitable, something that he can produce on, something he can extract from. He sees the same uh, in his women, you know, that this is simply like a, a marker of status and and someone that I uh, act upon rather than like a mutual kind of uh, facilitator of a, of a romance or a passion. But he's not outwardly evil. <laughs> you know, you, you tend to kind of even like sympathize with him. And there's some complexity offered, I think, uh, in the very brief sort of physical interactions that he has with Ada when they're locked in the cabin together where he's not allowed to touch her, but she touches him and he seems very, very uncomfortable with this. And it's not about like wanting to resist and like wanting to, to touch her. There's something else going on here. He seems almost like frightened of the sensuality of just her fingers on his chest or, or on his like bare ass. Like it's, it's very, very fascinating to, to watch. I I wonder what you all make of it, what you think is going on there. Well, speaking of like kind of the colonial attitude of his character, um, I think in the beginning, um, when she's doing her like brief narration, uh, Ada says how, um, he doesn't mind that she's mute because uh, if God can love dumb creatures, then so can I. Yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, which I think is very like that kind of, um, you know, that like philanthropic Christianity, that kind of like condescending uh, perspective of like, you know, like kind of like I will help you out of the goodness of my heart, but like it's to make me feel good too, it's to make me feel uh you know good and moral and and christian and godlike um mm-hmm. which you know and i think it's true like he he's not bad and he doesn't think of himself as bad either he thinks that he's doing this good generous thing for this woman and her daughter um and you know obviously he gets something out of it a wife um but you know in his mind i think that uh kind of the good deed is is paramount Uh, And then she comes and she's, like you said, like, she's kind of cold, she's kind of strange. And, you know, I think she, he says that she's shorter than he, he thought she would be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, it's not quite as he imagined, but he, he rolls with it because, you know, he's committed to his good deed. Um, And, and yeah, that, that moment, I think that's kind of that, that power dynamic at play where it turns out that, that Ada has more power than it seems like she does. And she's kind of enacting that on him. And I feel like there's like a weird fascination uh, with being kind of the object of that kind of attention, Mm -hmm. that kind of fascination. Um, But at the same time, like you said, like it is very uncomfortable for him. And he's like, why can't I touch you? Um, You know, and she just keeps going because, you know, she's trying to, to feel it out in her own way. Uh, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, uh, and you know that's just not how he understands the the dynamic between 
a man and a woman. I think he has like a very like cookie cutter understanding of like how their relationship is supposed to go. And there's not really any room for kind of their individual personalities or individual wants and needs. Um, whereas Baines obviously is very like adaptable to the situation. Right. Um, and yeah, but, but yeah, I, I think he's, he's really not a bad guy. And even after, you know, his, his bad evil moment where he cuts off her finger um, when he goes to Baines um, to ask if she's ever spoken to him, you know, he's, he kind of has that moment of, you know, he, he heard her voice very clearly in his head saying, you know, she's strong willed and she's afraid of what she'll do. And he's like, you know, I just don't, I don't want to deal with it anymore. And I think like, you know, that is kind of his like selfish moment, but at the same time, you know, considering what he'd just done, I think that's probably the best thing that he can do for everyone involved. Yep. Um, yeah. So he's a very fascinating man. You would, you would think that, uh, you know, you would kind of come out of it being like, Oh, that guy sucks. But he could does be worse. suck, but like he could be worse. Exactly. Could be worse. And yeah, I mean, we brought up, we butt up against his thresholds and his limits for the entirety of the film, right? Mm, like he's willing to true. accept this character, but he's unwilling to compromise on like what they're going to take with them. Even right. though she tries to bargain with him in exchange for the piano and her clothes, what have you, you know, he has this sort of sense of uh, propriety or, or, you know, um, decorum about things that say this must be the way this happens. Um, there's also a, what I think is maybe one of the funniest scenes in the film when he's talking with the other women in the homestead and is like, I knew I was getting someone dumb, but I didn't think I was getting someone crazy more or less, you know, right. like, like he's like, he's like realizing that there's more to it than this and that he's finding it very difficult. Um, and then as you already mentioned, and, and as you deduced, I think that's the right read on it, that he is incapable of understanding uh, a mutual infatuation and a mutual sense of discovery and sensuality within the relationship that it must always be him kind of, you know, for lack of a better term like forcing himself on her right that that she just relents to his advances and that she shouldn't have any sort of interest in reciprocating any of that touch or that curiosity i think this movie is about a romance first and foremost but it's very clear that campion has a perspective that is political to a certain extent and i think we see that um in several places, but in Sam Neill's character in particular, he clearly represents British Empire, right? Um, in New Zealand, uh, and and a lot of his personality and a lot of his sort of um, traits as as a as a man, a white man living in New Zealand, um, map back to a lot of uh, the sort of impulses of imperialist exploits. And I also found the two white female characters um, also really important in terms of like understanding a, a political perspective of the film in that, um, you know, their perspective is the sort of traditional colonizer perspective, which is like these people, the Maori, like they're savages, they're so unclean and uh, and, you know, they're uh, problematic in all these ways. And and um, they clearly don't have a sense of uh, all these sort of like 
proper relational um, interactions that that we're very well versed in. And yet we we see in many instances that the Maori people are the ones, as we often know, who are um, expressive and open and caring and um, and very genteel in all these ways that uh, these women are assuming that they're not. Yeah, I think they're they're totally intertwined because um, just like on the topic of understanding and and communication, like Baines, like very clearly has a very good relationship with the Maori people. Uh, you know they they hang out, they joke around. You know they talk to him. He understands their language, um, and most importantly, he has, he has the exactly <laughs> he has the tattoos. Uh, whereas Stuart Sam Neil's character, you know he doesn't understand what they're saying at all. They make jokes about him in their language, um, and he just you know smiles and nods like yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, you know, there's one part, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he's talking about um, the land and how do they know that it's theirs and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. his his claim to it and all that stuff. And, you know, and he clearly has made no efforts to understand um, the local culture, despite having been there for long enough to build up this little settlement, you know. Yes. Um, so and and that's totally connected to the way that they interact with with Ada um, and kind of their their openness or lack of openness um, towards the way that she lives her life and the way that she communicates um, and all that stuff. And I think that's yes. like you said, it's it's very um, it's it's really great on the part of Campion to to show like how how intertwined those those interactions are like the way that you treat you know people as a whole is related to the way that you treat you know the people that you you love or you know have some more personal relationship with the relationship to the maori people is an interesting one there's one scene in particular that i was very struck by um, and i think maybe misread initially but i think the fact that it could be misread is something that uh problematizes it as like as as you know uh delivering the message or the statement that maybe campion intended and that's the christmas pageant scene so at the christmas pageant uh, flora and the rest of the children in this community um are putting on a retelling of the classic folktale of bluebeard um, which in short is about a woman who's married off to a wealthy man. Uh, he gives her the key to the castle and says, you can go everywhere but this one room. She goes in that room anyway and finds the the heads of all of his former wives. Uh, he comes home and and threatens to also commit violence against her. I think in the end, she's saved and inherits his riches rather than being beheaded. But in the middle of this play, there is a scene happening with sort of like uh, silhouettes and shadows on a sheet, right when uh, Bluebeard is about to uh, behead his wife. And in the scene, there are some uh, Maori gentlemen watching who are becoming very uh, upset, almost enraged at the the images that they're seeing and at the moment that bluebeard casts his axe into like the air about to strike they storm the stage saying uh, i think in subtitled language like that they're not going to stand for this this uh, violence this treachery whatever it is and and put a an end to the the evening's proceedings 
at first I was very, very frustrated with this scene because I felt like it was leaning into uh, maybe a racist trope of the sort of uh, ignorant native, you know, that there are these characters who don't understand that what they're seeing is just play and just puppetry, what have you. Uh, and then realize that maybe it's the the opposite of that that is the intended message, which is that these uh, indigenous cultures that are often seen as more savage, more uncivilized, are the ones who ultimately have uh, more of a grasp on the civility of not committing violence against women. You know, they they attempt to stop it because they find it uh, they find it abhorrent and and need to like put a stop to it. I think I, I kind of went on the same journey as you where at first I was like, oh boy, like this is it. <laughs> I don't really like this, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, then uh, after thinking about it and rewatching it, I kind of came to the same conclusion where, yeah, I think um, it is communicating uh, a cultural difference. But as you said, it's more like, um, you know, they they see that that violence or that that threat of violence and they as you said they they won't stand for it like they go up to to help the woman um and you know maybe not understanding that uh it's a play or you know because it's behind the sheet they can't actually see like that it's not going to happen or that it's like a paper act or anything like that so um you know because they can't see exactly what's going on they you know they have that fear but um but yeah I think it is kind of communicating that that for them like violence you know it's not it's not so casual uh it's not it's not easy to dismiss um seeing that kind of thing or you know chopping off your wife's finger because you know you got mad at her or whatever um yeah, I think I think it is kind of a, a strange way to go about it. And I think it is very um, easy to misinterpret. Uh, and I can see why, you know, people may be uncomfortable with that scene. But I think overall, um, the purpose of it, as you said, is to to communicate like that that cultural difference um, in a way that 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 favors uh, the Maori over, you know, the, the white settlers. And presumably they've experienced intimately violence at the hands of white men, right? Um, which would also, uh, you know, justify having a more extreme response to seeing it um, performed so casually. Um, and I don't, you know, think it's a, a mistake, of course, because uh, we know it's not, that that's the story that's told. and you know, not 20 minutes later into the movie, we're um, at the precipice of an axe, uh, you know, chopping off a, a, a part of Ada's body. And, um, and it is Sam Neill's character that's doing it, right? I liked the sort of uh, the mirroring of those of those scenes. Um, and that in the case of Ada, like she's not necessarily saved um, or rescued, uh, but she is ultimately um, taken away and uh, and leaves with the Maori people um, who are also the people that stop the play. Right. 
I think too, um, just kind of talking about the parallels, like you can, the whole movie really has parallels to, to Bluebeard. Um, yeah, you know, she, that's true. She is, uh, you know, married off to, he's not rich, but you know, um, a man with, with land and, you know, the potential for wealth, um, who she doesn't know. And he does in a way, like kind of leave her to do her own thing uh until he finds out about Baines and then he locks her up and um you know tells her that you know she can't go anywhere and, and all that stuff like there there are a lot of commonalities between the two stories mm-hmm. and like you said it, it it ends with that that kind of violence slash threat of violence and then she does end up you know making it out okay but I just think it's interesting like it is kind of like a, a twist on on that fairy tale the the other thing I wanted to talk about, and then I'm sure you want to talk about the ending too um, at some point, but is the sort of formal qualities of this film that I think um, really speak to Campion's vision and her her talent. Um, I when we were watching this movie, I looked over at Aaron at one point and I was like, "This is a movie that was like made to be a movie," and he was like. Yeah, I guess. And then, like, as we were watching it, I was like, okay, I'm kind of right, but I'm kind of wrong. Like, at first, I was like, this is all about just like close ups on the keys and like, you know, these like beautiful vistas where the waves are crashing. It felt very much like it needed to be cinema. But the further into the story we got, the more I felt like it's also really indebted to. To paintings of the era like I felt at times like I was looking at a Manet painting or or some other sort of landscape um, from the 19th century and then also as we've talked about um, indebted to you know kind of literary romance of the time and um, and like a Jane Austen uh, novel or something right and and I think the way that Campion is able to sort of evoke each of these mediums in different ways and also have them all play together is um, no easy task by any stretch of the imagination, but also something that um, I think is unique to her filmmaking. You know, we were talking about watching power of the dog and I felt something similar, like a lot of painterly qualities to, to her shots. Um, Also a lot of moments that felt like they could only be, cinematic and nothing else um and still also like an adaptation from a story um and so feels very literary at times and um and I just really appreciated that the the further into this movie I got I I really adored that it felt like she's um it felt like she was able to evoke all of these mediums and have them work in harmony with one another rather than at odds with one another she's really good with I really don't know how to say it other than just like the just like the feeling of the movie like more than Mm. like the emotion or the plot or anything like she knows like you know I'm not a filmmaker so you know I don't really have the technical terms for it but it's just like you just feel so much when you're watching her movies you know and like you said like it's just it's all so evocative and like it's about the emotions, but it's also like very tactile and you can kind of like 
sense everything um, that's that's on the screen. And then there are those like really literary moments where, you know, it's like happening in front of you, but there's also kind of this like interplay with your mind's eye. Like, it's just like, mm. it's so crazy, like how many things that she's able to accomplish you know and it's just like it's just a movie like any other movie (laughs) yeah totally and the you're you're making me realize I think that this this intent that she has to situate us in a lot of nature and and she clearly has a reverence for nature we can see that in these beautiful sweeping uh vistas and also in these um amazing close-ups you know on like blades of grass or lush greenery or mud even she's she really has a reverence for nature and you're making me realize bailey that that i think is what speaks to this uh this feeling that you're talking about this like it gives sort of like a weightiness to the emotions that she's playing with and almost makes her stories feel very timeless, despite the fact that they are, um, you know, period pieces. Mm-hmm. It's it's this focus and reverence on the natural world that I think makes it feel um, kind of out of time and, and a little bit grander. And I think, too, uh, with this and... Um, the power of the dog she also like like the characters aren't afraid of nature you know like they they're tracking through the mud like um that great shot of of Baines um touching the hole in uh Ada's stocking Mm -hmm. uh you know you can see like she has the hole in her stocking number one like you know that's kind of probably a natural consequence of trekking through the the New Zealand wilderness um but then like just the detail of like his hands being dirty. Um, yes. You know, like I love that. Like, even though like, you know, it's gross that his nails are gross, but like, <laughs> you know, they wouldn't be clean in that <laughs> totally. circumstance. They wouldn't. <laughs> I totally th- wouldn't. I thought about you this know? a lot, actually, when I was looking at all the period detail, you know, there's a lot of like uh, wear and, and tear to, to the clothing and to the costuming. Um, but also, yes, like all of the men and even the women here, like, I don't know if it's makeup or what they did, but they like make all of their hands and fingers look like impacted with dirt all of the time. And it's, it's something I appreciate, you know, this, this film. And I think largely because the casting of people like Kaitel, who's like not a traditionally handsome, like leading man type and, Mm -hmm. and Holly Hunter, who is beautiful, but like, you know, a little more demure and not quite so like, modern looking you know she has kind of like uh you know sharp features but but they make her very plain otherwise it doesn't it it feels like a real period piece you know it doesn't feel like hot 90s actors like putting on corsets right like right. It, it 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 feels like uh it feels period appropriate and it feels like characters who actually kind of feel and look and live like they're in the mud in the new zealand wilderness mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the ending of this film because I'm still thinking about it and I don't know what to make of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Yeah. So to set the stage just a little bit, the conclusion of this film after uh, Sam Neill cuts off Holly Hunter's finger, he claims to hear his, her voice in his head goes to Baines and says, has, have you ever heard her speak? She spoke to me. She told me that like, I have to let her go with you. 
and he kind of relents and says, you can have her and Flora and, and go wherever you're going. I think they're just going elsewhere in New Zealand on a, on a boat. Once they're on that boat, they're bringing along Ada, Flora, and the piano. And Ada insists through Flora's translations that they hurl the piano overboard. And once they relent and, and concede to her demand, she puts her foot right in the middle of the ropes that are attached to the, the piano that pull her overboard and underwater until at the last minute she decides to kind of loose her, her boot and swim up to the surface. But for a moment, you think that she's just going to let herself drown. We then see her sometime later. She's made a life with Baines. Uh, Baines has made her a, a little metal finger to replace uh, the one that was cut off that she can use to play the piano. Um, they are clearly still very infatuated with each other. There's a lot of intimacy and and uh, she smiles for the very first time, I think, in the movie as they're, as they're kissing. And she says with her mind's voice that she often still imagines herself on the end of the rope, effectively drowned with the piano at the bottom of the ocean. If either of you have any thoughts as to what this conclusion means, I, I, I am having a hard time with it. Like it feels like that that imagery that we're left with as the final shot of the movie of of you know this body sort of buoyed and anchored to this piano at the bottom of the ocean seems to me to feel like there's some sort of like resignation that uh, there was a moment where she could have died and then didn't, but that she also often considers that outcome. I don't know whether she desires it or not doesn't really seem to come up, but I, I, I don't, I'm not sure what to make of the finale here. I was thinking about this and I think uh, to go back again to her mind's voice in the beginning, when she says that she has such a strong will, uh, the day that she decides to stop breathing will be the day that she dies. Mm. And then uh, when Sam Neill hears her voice, uh, she says something about she's afraid of her strong will uh, and what it will do. You have to let me go. You have to let me go with Baines. Um, and then when you know they're they're on the boat and she she tells them to to pitch the piano over how it's spoiled now. She doesn't want it anymore. Um, and they push it over. Like you see her very consciously make the decision to put her her foot. Uh, in the the rope coil so that she'll be pulled over um and then I don't know I feel like it's she it's weird because like you know her life is silent for all intents and purposes just because she can't talk but she clearly has you know this internal monologue going on and I think maybe in that moment like that is when she kind of experiences like true silence uh, and some sort of like peace. Um, and she knows kind of like the power of her will and what she can do like for herself, um, if she so chooses. Um, and she, in the end, when you have that kind of imagery of her, she calls it like, or she says at night that she imagines herself at the end, um, of that rope attached to the piano still. And she says it's, it's a strange lullaby. Um, that kind of, I think that suggestion of like that silence as a lullaby to her um, mm. is really interesting. I think, I think honestly, it was just like a moment of peace for her that she returns to um, rather than like 
resignation. It's just like one moment where she's alone, no thoughts. You know, she's just kind of, for lack of a better word, vibing down there. <laughs> I was going to say, no thoughts, just vibes at the bottom. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting ending for sure. I, I had read somewhere that I think Campion initially uh, in early drafts of the script had intended for her to go overboard and just drown mm-hmm. to to let herself die along with the piano. I find it complicated, not in a bad way, but just complicated. It is. Bailey, Bailey has totally made me think differently about the ending. And I think you're spot on, Bailey. Like, I, I think you're absolutely right. That read that it's a moment of peace for her. Um, but also evidence of like what she's capable of really and truly. Uh, I, I completely agree with that. And now I'm rethinking about the ending and I, uh, that makes the most sense to me also just given, like you said, what, what narration bookends the movie. Right. Yeah. And I think too, like, um, you know, obviously after losing her finger, she is, she is miserable. And, you know, this, this mode of communication has been taken away from her. Um, But I think too, like it's really important that she says that the the piano spoiled for her um, Mm. after, you know, the, the incident with, with Stuart. And I think, and it's funny too, because Baines, Harvey Keitel's character interprets it as like, she's talking about the key that she removed uh, that it's spoiled because it, you know, that, that key isn't working, it won't work properly. And he's like, oh no, like, we'll get it fixed. Like, I want you to have the piano. But it's obviously like deeper than that. It's about the whole um, experience. And I think too, it's part of it is that like, um, at a certain point, the piano became about Baines for her uh, as much as it was about communication and kind of that, that mm-hmm. relationship. Um, and it's not the same after you know, one, uh, when Sam Neill attacks her, he, he puts the ax in the piano. Um, right. but then, you know, just kind of his, his intruding on that, that intimate relationship, I think kind of, uh, ruins the, the piano and that, that particular tool of communication. Uh, now pianos in general, obviously aren't ruined for her, but I think that, that particular one that she was like, it's mine. It's not hers anymore because of this whole um, experience. And that like, to your point, she is with Baines now. And so, you know, their relationship can sort of stand on its own, right? It doesn't need to have this pretense of the piano being the thing that like brings them together. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love that. Mm. And also one of the, the, the Maori, like when Baines is resisting, pushing it um, into the ocean, uh, they say that, that she's right and that it's a coffin and that uh, they should let the ocean yes. bury it. Mm. Yeah. Um, That's right. So like, it is like, uh, I feel like her going over with the piano and kind of like staying there for a moment is like, and I think she does say like, it's a strange death. Um, and it is kind mm-hmm. of a death uh in the sense of like she's putting that that part of her life this brief chapter with with Stuart to rest um and she takes that moment you know drowning to to make her peace with it and then you know comes back up and that's like kind of the a new chapter for her um yeah so I, I feel like overall it's definitely more 
um, more about like renewal than it is about, you know, mm-hmm. like a uh, suicidal desire or anything like that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. I think you're spot on. It's a really emotionally complex film. Um, there's there's a lot of texture to all these characters, aided in no small part by the score by Michael Nyman, yeah. uh, which as I was uh, researching this, I was certain in my mind that this score was one of the other uh, things that uh, received a nomination during the awards period for this, that it was one of those eight Oscars. Uh, It wasn't, it wasn't anywhere near the nomination. (laughs) And I, I about threw a fit when I realized this, Um, uh, you know, John Williams, the ultimate winner for the Schindler's list score, which is beautiful. It's, it's lovely. He's an an incredible talent. We love John Williams on hit factory. Um, But this score is so incredible and it's so moving uh, it's so evocative. And unlike some movies, you notice it, which isn't always a good thing. But in this film, you you feel and notice the emergence of the piano in every moment of the film. And maybe mm-hmm. it's because we've already been kind of keyed into and attuned to knowing what the piano represents within the context of the film. Uh, but the score is just masterful. And I can't believe that it didn't get every accolade under the sun when this film was released. It really is. And I think too, like it's really astounding because, because there is like such a lack of, of dialogue. Uh, Like it feels like the score is probably like very integral to the screenplay. Like, I'm not sure, you know, Mm -hmm. in what way they, you know, obviously she had the screenplay or, but like, I'm not sure how they developed it, but like clearly like, you know, the two are very, very intertwined um and so much about the score communicates the emotion of the movie uh and it would be a totally different movie uh you know with a different score if it wasn't you know so so prominent if it wasn't the the music that she plays like within the narrative wasn't integrated into the score like there's it would be a totally different movie without that music and it's crazy to think that you know, it got all of these accolades and then they were just like, the score's not important. Totally. But the music from the firm was nominated. <laughs> so which which we have uh lauded on the show before, but only because of how silly it is within the context of the overall it's, the overall it's filmmaking. It's not beating out the the music from this movie. No, like, no it's not. It's not even not. a little bit. Um but of course we know like Oscars are not uh, ultimately reflective of the best quality film or the even you know the, the best of anything in any given year um, but it is interesting talking about this film as really the the last time that campion uh, was really considered and really a front runner for Oscar contention uh, because we are in 2022 now almost 30 years later and that is happening again uh, probably for the very first time since with campion's the power of the dog. Uh, which I believe just took home the Best Picture Drama Award at the Golden Globes uh, about a week ago um, and is is a likely front runner for the Best Picture Award at the Oscars when they happen uh, in a, a few more weeks here. I really enjoyed this movie. I know we talked about it a little bit before we got on mic. It, it feels like maybe the film in her uh, catalog that feels the closest to the piano in terms of kind of its scope. And we've got these vistas, the period sort of detail. Meaning the power of the dog. The power of the dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, it 
it also seems like it's kind of in conversation with the piano a little bit. I found interesting that there is like the subplot of uh, Jesse Plemons character uh, coercing sort of Kirsten Dunst's character into relearning and practicing the piano in order to like sort of make this display uh, for uh, the governor. Uh, whoever he had, Keith Carradine's character and his wife, you know, when they're trying to put on these airs and appear very sort of cultured um, and the way in which this instrument, which in, in the piano reflected uh, a voice reflected expression is now like this commodified entity that is actually like another object of oppression for this woman in the early 20th century America. I think it's interesting uh, in the power of the dog, music is almost like for Kirsten Dunn's character in particular, like it's almost like torture for her. Um, Not only because of the the sequence with the piano where she does not want to play and uh, you know, he forces her to, and she's so nervous about it. And you know, it's clearly like not an enjoyable experience for her, but also because of um, the way that Benedict Cumberbatch's character like taunts her um mm-hmm. with his banjo which he's much better at playing than she is the piano and with that little tune that he kind of like follows her around with um yeah very interesting like you know kind of the the psychological element of the music in both of these movies yes totally agree yeah. it's like terrorizing kirsten dunce's character in in the power of the dog um i really i i really like the way that um Jane sort of uses elements of nature and also, um, you know, of music uh, to kind of help us understand and situate us in like emotional, um, emotional corners of people's existence. I also think it's really interesting kind of the conversation of um, how the characters in those movies connect to people through their objects. Um, in, in the piano, there's a part where, um, Harvey Keitel's character Baines is alone with the piano. Um, and he's totally in the nude and he's just like wiping the dust off of the, the piano, but like so carefully. So, um, you know, so clearly like using this moment to connect to, to Ada, despite the fact that she's not there. Um, and then. In the power of the dog, there's the part where um, Benedict Cumberbatch is in that kind of clearing uh, with Bronco Henry's um, like his handkerchief or something. I can't remember exactly yeah. what he has, um, but but yeah, he's just there, like you know, feeling it and clearly like thinking back to um, some moment that he and Bronco Henry had um, and trying to put himself in that moment through uh, that object. Uh, which I think is like really fascinating. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. And the saddle too, right? Yes. That he he so meticulously polishes and and touches very deliberately. That that scene with Bronco Henry's handkerchief is like one of the I think most powerful like evocative moments in the entire movie. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is excellent in that. By the way, I so would, oh absolutely. Would, yeah, would like to see him get uh, recognition the same way that Holly Hunter and, and Anna Paquin did. Uh, back in 93. Yep. I was also laughing at, you know, there's this, uh, because it exists in, in the Twitter era, uh, that, that sort of meme 
that uh, Jane Campion kind of endorsed from Netflix where everyone was offering up what they thought Bronco, Bronco Henry would look like. And people were just posting right. various like, uh, like studded out like gay cowboys and, <laughs> and shit. And I was like trying to figure out like what the equivalent would be for the piano. And I imagine that people would just be like, quote tweeting like, you know, kinky stuff on the internet with like three keys or like 10 keys or something like that. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but I, I I think The Power of the Dog is a really special movie. It's it's just nice to see her working again, frankly. Like, you yes. know, she works very slowly. She only has like five films over like a 35-year career. Yeah. Um, a few more than that, like six or seven, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I think that this new one is is something really special, and uh, I'm glad that it uh, was maybe the impetus and the jump we needed to to talk a little bit about the piano. Um, and thank you to Bailey Herde for for joining us in that conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was so great. Uh, where can where can people find you and your work? Uh, well, you can find me mostly on Twitter. Uh, I'm love to be on there uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh my twitter is at bin underscore her day um yeah i i like to write sometimes um <laughs> you can find most of that on there um but yeah it was it was really great talking to you guys we loved having you on you did tease recently that you were potentially writing again Yes, uh, I'm trying to. Uh, unfortunately, I have a day job that takes up a lot of my time. So. <laughs> yeah, we all do. We know it. <laughs> I'm trying, though. <laughs> right on. Yeah, we'll all try together. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing our best. Uh, Bailey, thank you so much again. Um, of course, you can follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod. That's Instagram and Twitter. Um, sorry for all the things that I post on that Twitter account. <laughs> uh, you can also subscribe uh, and support the show for uh, bonus content, episodes, interviews, what have you at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod for just $5 a month. Shout out to our capitalist overlords. Their names are Linda and Jesse K. And we will catch you all the next time. Thanks, everyone. Talk about reasons why you don't want to talk about reasons why you don't want to talk. Now that you got everybody you consider sharp, all alone, all together, all together in the dark. Leave it all up in the air. Leave it all up in the air. Leave it all up in the air. Put the sounds of your hearts in a song Try to be speechless for a minute If you think you're gonna faint Go out in the hallway Let them all have your men Ada, don't stay in the lake too long It lives alone and it barely knows you It'll have a nervous breakdown and fall 